0: hear the word of the God from John chapter 13. You can follow along the screen or in your own Bible. John 13, verses one through 20 and verses 34 and 35. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I sent accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And now verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord.
1: I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains of North Carolina. And um, if you know anything about Appalachian culture, when we say reach the nations here, we're talking about reaching people like me too, because we are a unique people and culture. Well, also um, my grandma, who we called Nanny growing up, those mountain grannies tend to be some pretty strong, tough women. So my dad in our barn actually has a pile of ladders because my nanny, in her 80s, kept getting on a ladder and doing projects around her house. So she would, my, my dad would inevitably find her on a ladder, go and take the ladder away, only to a couple of weeks later, find her on another ladder and go take that ladder away. So there was this perpetual stream of ladders showing up at her house we don't know if she was buying new ladders or if my papaw just had a barn full of ladders but there was ladder after ladder after ladder as this 80 something year old lady was climbing and repairing gutters washing windows all these kinds of things it's amazing it was amazing to see the strength that this lady had as she would climb these ladders well I bring up ladders because I just want you to look at this example of a ladder for a second. Now we all know about ladders. We all know how ladders are built. Basically, you've got two legs and then the rungs of the legs hold those together. Now, why do I bring that up? Because in today's passage in John chapter 13, the more I studied this, and I'll tell you, I struggled through this passage all week. There's a lot of just. There's a lot of text here, there's a lot going on in it, and I was tempted to just extract the part where Jesus is washing the disciples' feet and talk about that, but I kept seeing these references to one who would betray him. Someone's going to betray him. There's someone going there, and then in actually the whole passage on Judas, and so, I thought of a ladder, because these two legs of a ladder kind of remind me of these two narratives that are kind of running parallel throughout this whole passage of john 13. and there's a lot of things that interlock these there are a lot of interwoven pieces together so what we're going to try to do this morning is we're going to try to extract the truth of god's word from john chapter 13 but keeping in mind that there are two narratives running parallel Now, as I walk us through this morning, I'm going to try to show us these two parallel narratives separated, yet at the same time, try to bring the truth of their interlocked togetherness out. All right. So you with me? It's going to be a little journey that we're going to go on together. But let's pray together before we do that. Okay. Lord, we submit that this morning your word is truth And I am yet a broken vessel, a broken cistern, as Jeremiah would say. And so, Lord, in my leakiness, I just pray, Father, that you will speak, that the power of your Holy Spirit will be evident in this place, that you will move in power in our hearts, enlightening us to understand the truth of your word. And may we do it all to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first ladder leg that we're going to really look at this morning, I call the, the first narrative, I call the work of Jesus. Okay, the work of Jesus. And this has a couple of parts to it. First of all, this and this verse is awesome. Verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... And here's this just really encouraging part. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. So the first part of this, the work of Jesus, is that Jesus loves his own to the end. He loves his own to the end. God sets apart a people that He promises to love. He chooses. The, the words He actually uses in John 13 is the words choose or chosen. It's this election of people to His own self by the Father. The Father elects them for His Son and this special people become the objects of His love and grace. This is an amazing place to be in because that special chosen or elect people he calls his own. He calls them his own. He's like, these are my people. All right. They're mine. Jesus own people. So how do you get to be Jesus own? That's the question we need to ask this morning. How do I become one who is his own? Jesus Purchases, that's where we need to look at. Jesus buys, he ransoms, he purchases people, he purchases his own for the Father with his death on the cross. This is where the gospel narrative comes really in clarity for Christianity. We need to know, as people who are Jesus' own, we need to know, as the church, that there is something going on on the cross where Jesus is actually purchasing men for God. He is buying, in essence, our salvation through His sacrificial death. He makes a purchase for us in in this. There needs to be a blood sacrifice. So because of the sin of mankind that happens in the garden, God declares that there has to be a blood sacrifice in order for those people to be made right again with God. For rebels to be able to be accepted back into a kingdom to which they rebelled against, there has to be blood shed. So this entire sacrificial system in the Old Testament was established in order to say... This is the sacrifice that's being made in order for an an atonement. And an atonement means to be brought back as one with the one that was offended. So Jesus on the cross makes atonement, he makes his sacrifice, he redeems us from sin and death by dying in our place. Rebels should die for their rebellion in God's kingdom. God himself dies in the place of the rebel to purchase them back into his kingdom. So this is what Jesus has done. Now, if we look back at John chapter 12, just a little bit back at John chapter 12, and and I just want to note, we didn't skip John chapter 12. We're going to come back to that closer to Easter, but we're moving forward for now. But back in John chapter 12, verse 27, I want you to see this. Jesus says this now is my soul troubled and what shall I say father save me from this hour but for this purpose I have come to this hour Jesus knows that something is coming he understands that the purchase of mankind the redemption of man through the sacrifice of blood is coming he knows that his hour is coming. And look at verse, or chapter 13 again, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus knows that his death is on the way. And this, John chapter 13, actually acts as a turning point in the book of John. So everything leading up to chapter 13 has been a narrative about Jesus' life and the things that he's been doing and the way he's been serving mankind. John chapter chapter 13 changes everything because from this point on, Jesus has his eyes set on the cross. He knows it's coming. He knows the hour is at hand. Can you imagine I mean, this is like a death row sentence. I know it's coming. There's a countdown. And he's going to die. He's going to die a terrible death. And so in verse three, he says, Jesus, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. So he understands this is happening and he understands there's some authority being established here by God the Father and he's saying goodbye. So a lot of commentaries and books and theologians will call this the farewell discourse. All right. This is him saying, I'm out. I'm I'm saying goodbye. I'm saying goodbye to everyone, my disciples. So this turning point is a hinge as Jesus heads to the to the cross. And there's some things we need to understand about knowing this. The hour had come we've seen that second Satan is tempting Judas and there's the other narrative that's going on here parallel there's this idea that Jesus knowing that the hour has come and this last thing he's going to do with his disciples is being paralleled with this narrative of what's going on with Judas Judas has been tempted by Satan to turn away from Jesus He is going to, and we're going to look at this in more detail later, but he is going to ultimately betray Jesus at this moment during this time. Now, at the same time, we also learn in verse 1 that this is the season of Passover. This references back to Exodus chapters 11 through 13, where Yahweh, God, is going to pass through Egypt in judgment and strike down the firstborn males of every kind. Jesus, the Son, becomes struck down for us, killed on the cross, and sacrificed as the Lamb of God. Also in Exodus, Yahweh is going to pass over. So here we, we see him, and these are the words that the scriptures use. He passes through Egypt, okay? He's going to pass over the families, that's where the word Passover comes from, The pass over the families whose homes have been smeared with the blood of a sacrificed lamb. They're actually going to wipe the blood on the doorposts of their homes and they will be protected. And so he's going to pass over those. Well, God the Father passes over us when we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Yahweh in Exodus is also going to give Israel the the ability to pass out of Egypt. So he's going to pass through Egypt, pass over those who are covered in the blood, and give them the ability to pass out of Egypt. Okay? And so giving them ultimate freedom from their slavery. The Holy Spirit gives us freedom from sin and death through the death of Jesus Christ. In John chapters, In John chapter 1, verses 29 and 36, John the baptizer calls Jesus the Lamb of God who is going to take away the sin of the world. In John's gospel, and not the same John as John the baptizer, a different John, it's kind of like John today. Everybody's named John or Josh or Hannah, all right? In John's gospel, Jesus is hanging on the cross at the very same moment that the Passover lambs are going to be sacrificed in John chapters 18 and 19. So there's intentionality about the whole way this thing is laid out from Exodus to all the chapters of John to show us this tie to Moses and the Exodus and the Passover and the sacrifice lambs that we read about in Leviticus. All of this is being tied directly to Jesus and it's happening at the very moment that all of this feast of Passover is going on. And even in Revelation, John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, who wrote the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he also wrote the book of Revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Revelation says that there Jesus is worshipped as the slain lamb who by his blood purchases mankind for God. In Revelation chapters 5 and 12. So from the beginning to the end, we see this woven picture all throughout. So, We are now, through this purchased sacrifice, we become his own. That's how you become a child of God. That's how you're restored to your relationship with God through the rebellion that happened in the Garden of Eden in Genesis to now we're seeing how we become his own. We are now his own, passed over. While the judgment of Yahweh strikes the son, the firstborn son, the firstborn male, he becomes struck down by the passover for us so we belong fully to him because revelation says we have been purchased by the blood of the lamb and because we are his no matter our sin we are his to the end we're his to the end all that from verse one now Jesus, Judas is going to reject and betray Jesus. Eventually, all the disciples are going to reject him in the garden. Peter especially is going to be drawn out as a picture of one who, who turns and rejects him. And yet, he loves them to the end. He loves them to the end. Knowing that I am his, knowing that I am his own, knowing that I am a son of God. If you're a lady, you're a daughter of the king. I can be assured that nothing I can do, nothing I can say, nothing I've ever done, nothing I will ever do in the future, nothing I'm doing in the present, past, present, future, I am His own. Nothing will separate me from His love. Nothing. He will stand condemned on the cross in my place, and therefore I am not condemned but loved. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus will take the condemnation of God on our behalf so that when we stand before God, we are not condemned. So currently, I'm in a leadership class, and with that class comes some leadership coaching, all in the name of Christian leadership. But... This past month in February, when I went to my leadership class and then talked to my leadership coach, I heard some things spoken to the class and spoken to me directly that I feel like we have many of us have grown up in the church hearing. Maybe the intention is right, but the words are absolutely off. And this is what it said. In the leadership class, we're, we're all sitting there. It's, it's about 30 pastors across the state of North Carolina. And the professor teacher says to us, he's, he's just talking. And by way of trying to encourage us, he says, I want you to do an exercise. I want you to sit down with a pen and a piece of paper. You really want to know what God thinks about you? You sit down with a pen and a piece of paper. You just get in a quiet room. And <laughs> that'll be an exercise. You just let God tell you what he thinks about you. And these guys are taking notes. And I wrote in the margin of my notes that phrase, get a piece of paper and pen and see what God thinks about me. Now, growing up and hearing that Christianity with which I grew up, this is what I heard. This was the old filter. Man, it's going to be a long list. (laughs) Oh, man. God, when he thinks about the things I've done. Dang. That's not true. That is not the gospel. You know what I would write on a piece of paper? Not condemned. Not condemned. Because when God looks at me, he sees his son, he sees Jesus. When God looks at me, he looks in a mirror because he sees his own self. And yes, I've looked at the backside of a mirror. I know that they're cruddy and they're ugly and they're nasty. And that is me. But I'm the backside of the mirror because when God looks at me, he sees his son, Jesus. And I stand there not condemned. So I want to say to my professor, thank you for that exercise. Because it reminded me that my sin is not held against me. That my sin has been wiped away. That the cross of Jesus Christ and His blood spilled for me washed it away. And when He washed me, I am white as snow. And when I stand there, I stand not condemned because Christ was condemned for me. And for so many of us that grew up hearing... That we are condemned, and then just get a piece of paper and listen to the bony finger of God pointing at you in your chest. That is false religion. Because the only bony finger that ever points at you in condemnation is Satan himself. Because our Father looks on us in love and only has compassion for His children. And then my coach called me up and he said, You know what? You better be careful. Because when you disobey, you'll quit hearing the voice of the Holy Spirit. That is a lie. Because when I disobey and I repent, I hear the voice of the Holy Spirit saying, Well done, my faithful, my good and faithful servant. I want to remind you, church, today that we are saints. If you are his own, you are his own to the end. And there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can say. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can say that will walk, that will cause God to walk away from you. He, we are prodigal children, yes. But our father is always standing there with arms wide open. May we run to Him, church. May we run to Him. Because not only did Jesus come to love His own, Jesus came to serve His own. The culture and customs of that day would have said, when you walk into a room, a servant or a slave would have washed the grime off of your feet because you're walking around in sandals. And you know, this is a Chaco culture. I'm going to tell you something. When you take those Chacos off, the whole room knows about it. (laughs) seriously y'all especially on a rainy day there's some smelly feet right I'm telling you this was the day and we have clean streets we're walking around on sidewalks and clean streets in Jesus day their feet were in manure and mud and dust and we won't even get into everything else that's on the street. So when you walked into someone's house, the custom of the day was that someone would wash your feet because when you sat at a table, you sat at a low table like this one and you ate with your feet out like this. Now, can you imagine my choco feet sitting right by the side of your head when you're gonna put your morsel in your mouth? Your taste buds work through your nose, all right? so. So here Jesus and his disciples are all at this meal. This is a rented room, a bunch of guys. It's a three-on-three basketball tournament with some pizza. It's not all like organized, and it's not got all the fancies. So no one's there to wash their feet. No one's there to do it. The disciples didn't jump to do it either. Did you notice that? Now, like I said earlier I grew up in the Appalachian Mountains and my wife for Christmas got me this really cool book on Appalachian Mountain culture some people have been organizing all these different things and there was a chapter on foot washing and snake handling I was like man yeah I've heard about now I've never been to a foot washing or snake handling church service makes me kind of want to go after reading it because it's it's interesting but In the mountains, they do have foot washing services. You go in and the deacons of the church will wash the people's feet and will do all this. And the snake handling, I still haven't got my mind around snake handling. It is weird, but they do these snake handling services to test their faith and all this kind of stuff. Well, this is not a Appalachian foot washing service. This is the son of God in the flesh. He's going to remove his outer garments, wrap a towel around his waist like a servant and get down and wash the crud off of the disciples feet. Look at this. It says, and I love this. Um, it says this, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. He poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? I would have really thought of a different question from Peter at that point. Like, well, no, 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 let me do it. He didn't. He said, Lord, you're going to wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. I love Peter's reactions. I mean, you could do a whole study on just Peter's reactions. He is like, I don't know what to call him. Reactionary? I'm not sure. But, I mean, he just jumps right in. Well, then, um, you'll never wash my feet He's this one phrase. And then next thing you know, well, Lord, not my feet only, but wash my hands and my head. Wash my whole body. Give me a bath. And uh, Jesus is saying... Um, says to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So is he talking about one of them hadn't had a bath today? Somebody smells in here? No. See, this this is moved from foot washing to heart cleansing. Jesus is talking about salvation now. He's like, I will make you clean. I'm the one. Who makes you clean. So, Jesus has, in verse 3, we see he has the full authority of God in heaven. He is the King of all kings, the Lord of all lords. And at this moment, he's going to inaugurate a specific type of reign and rule in his kingdom. He didn't establish a heavy handed rule, instead, he establishes a kingdom that loves and that serves. A kingdom that loves and serves. So Jesus washes his disciples' feet as a servant. Peter's response shows that he's not expecting this kind of kingdom. He's, he's not expecting this kind of king. If he had have, I think he would have asked the question, let me wash your feet or let me jump to this. But this act of foot washing is more than an act of humility. It's a dramatic prelude to the greater humiliation of the cross where Jesus is going to demonstrate his love. Matthew 20, 28, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus rose from his place at the table just as he rose from his throne in heaven to come to this earth. Jesus laid aside his outer garments just as he laid aside his glory in Philippians chapter two, where it says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. As Jesus poured water into a basin to wash the filth from the disciples' feet, he will later pour out his blood to wash away the filth of our sin. Just as Jesus resumed his place at the table with his disciples, he after his death he will rise from the grave, ascend on high and resume his place on his throne in heaven. So like Peter we need this clean cleansing from our suffering servant savior Jesus to be made clean. It's not a reference to our dirty feet. It's a reference to our salvation. We need Jesus to accomplish this on our behalf. So when we are declared clean clean as we respond in faith to what Jesus is doing. We're clean as we stand before God. As we stand before His holiness, we're clean. Not like my uh, professor said in leadership class I'm not condemned. I'm not condemned. I'm clean. We're clean before God because of Christ's work. And that will never change. We do live in a dirty world, however, and our enemy, Satan, wants us to believe that our dirty feet, as we walk this sin-sick planet, he wants us to believe that will make us dirty again. He wants us to believe we will will lose our status of salvation. Our Our deceiver wants us to believe that. Yet the gospel reminds us of our status in Christ. And we can say like Martin Luther said, yes, Satan, I am a sinner, and I did sin. But what of it? I have been washed by the blood of Jesus and have been made clean forevermore. So Jesus comes to love his own. Jesus came to serve his own and he inaugurates a kingdom that loves and serves. Tertullian, who lived 100 years after Christ's death. He said this. um, He was saying that the pagans of that day would say, it was common for them to say about Christians, see how they love one another? They are even willing to die for one another. That's the kingdom that Christ inaugurated. So in verses 12 through 20, we see he inaugurated that those who are his own will perpetuate that kingdom of loving and serving mankind. We will bless one another. We'll be aware of each other's needs and we will love and we will serve the community of faith and the community who are not believers. And then at the end, Jesus says this, verses 34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that's the kingdom he inaugurates. And that's the leg of the ladder where we talk about the work of Jesus. Now, the leg of the ladder, the second leg, is the work of Satan, the deceiver, okay? You can see the work of the deceiver all woven throughout this. Verse 2, 8, 10, 18, 19, and 21 through 30. This is where you see these things going on. All right. Now, I also, again, I'm going to make a lot of references to the mountains, but I grew up in the mountains also Fly fishing, OK? So fly fishing. So this is my right here, this is my kit. all right? This is a Tenkara fly rod. It extens, extends out to 10 feet long. kind of comes out like that. And I'm not going to do the whole thing. But anyway, all right? And those are flies. This is my fly box. All right Inside here are the killers, all right? These are the deceivers. You see them up there, attached to the fly rod? All right, the one on the far left, that one is an Appalachian Mountain Heritage fly. This thing, we, we don't even know how old this thing is. We believe that the Cherokee Indians used to fly fish with this fly. It's called a yowler hammer, all right? you say yowler? yowler. Yeah, good, and that's Appalachian mountain talk right there. Yowler, because it's yellow, right? But we don't say yellow. <laughs> me say yowler yeah. it's a yowler hammer and it looks like a it looks like a yellow jacket because man I don't know what it is about a yaller hammer but Appalachian trout cannot cannot ignore it you can fish all day with whatever you want and I can walk in there and drop a yaller hammer and tear it up <laughs> alright well this is interesting here because what's really happening, this is really So when you, the Tenkara fly rod does not use a reel, okay? It's an extremely long rod that's extremely flexible. I can actually bend the tip all the way down to the handle. When a trout actually attacks the fly, this entire rod bends double and goes crazy. I mean, you're just doing this and there's no reel. So you gotta actually like pick the thing up and net the fish, okay? It's a lot of fun. But one thing you do with a Tinkara rod, it's different, in traditional fly fishing, and you've all seen this probably, a guy pulling line off, so he's doing this motion. He's doing this, pulling line off of the reel and doing this. In Tinkara, you actually whip it in there, like that, okay? I threw something at somebody, because the tip came off, <laughs> my bad. I would like that back. Went I mean, all the way back there. Nice. Hey, I want that back. It's a very expensive piece. And I'm a Baptist preacher. So so anyway, what we do is you actually whip that fly into there. Now look back at verse uh, 2, chapter 3, chapter 13, verse 2. During supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. You know what the original language actually says? This is amazing. It says that he cast it into his heart. Satan cast into the heart of Judas. Deception. Now, it's really fascinating because we have to look at this and understand some things going on here. Because I don't want us to walk away from here feeling condemned or feeling like we're at all Judas. Okay? Although some people might be. Some people might grow up in the church with the benefits of being a disciple, yet truly are not. But I want to see this. I want us to look, I want us to see the contrast between Judas and Peter as well. Alright? But I want us to look, if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Romans 7, 21. Romans 7.21 is a verse that's going to help us understand some things about the deceiver. So we're going to break away from John for just a few minutes in our last minutes here, and we're going to look at what Romans is going to teach us about the deceptive ways of Satan. Okay, Romans 7.21 says this. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Okay, sin is a law. Now, I don't want you to think of laws like uh, don't speed or if you're in Singapore, don't chew gum. All right. I want you to think of it as like the law of gravity. All right. It's a force that can make objects obey its will. Indwelling sin in believers, because we we do have to recognize that though we don't stand condemned, we also still wrestle with sin we also still wrestle with what the Bible calls our flesh. It's not necessarily talking about skin here. It's talking about the sin nature that we have that's still intact. Even though I don't stand condemned, and even though that will be glorified away, and I will stand in heaven one day with a glorified body, the body I now have wrestles against. It's an enemy within. It's this enemy fighting me. So this law is at work enticing, threatening, bullying, trying to work to press me into its mold. Christ works in believers against sin by overthrowing the rule of sin in our hearts, weakening the power of sin, even killing its root in believers so that it cannot bear the fruit of eternal death. Did you hear that? Jesus kills the root of sin so it doesn't bear the fruit of eternal death. Now in an unbeliever, That's not true. The root of eternal death still exists so that you or an unbeliever produces the fruit of unrighteousness. And many unbelievers, like Judas, sit within the church thinking they're okay. And in essence, they're just waiting for payday. Like, when are we going to get paid here? When do I get my silver? The contrast is with Peter, who also denies Jesus. Yet in remorse and repentance, turns back and finds Jesus later on waiting on a beach with fish. Oh, there's the fish thing again. I didn't even figure, I didn't think about that one. <laughs> waiting to restore him. Waiting to show him his love. All right. So this law inside us, this enemy within it, that Romans is talking about. Believers feel this law at work in us. Unbelievers do not. Okay? This is why Judas could go out and do what he did. He didn't feel that. He didn't feel that power of Christ working against the root of his sin. He didn't feel remorse. He, he, it might look like it because he later went and hung himself, but he was just covered in guilt, and he never had a guilt-bearer take that away. Whereas Peter, when he denies Christ, is remorseful and repentant, like I said earlier. So unbelievers are carried along in this current of the law while believers swim up against it. So this law works against us when I when I want to do good, when I'm actually serving Christ. The law sets an ambush. Where are those flies? Look at those if that picture comes back up, those flies, it's an ambush. I know as a fly fisherman that I'm setting an ambush for those flies. I know there's a hook in there. I know it. But that fly is deceptive. It's a delicious desire. So sin and its master Satan works against us through deceiving us, making things look pretty. Satan threw this into Judas's heart to deceive Christ, to, to, to come across and deceive and betray Christ, or not deceive Christ, but to betray Christ. Satan hides from our minds the painful consequences we ought to consider, leading us to false judgment. How, much, how many times do I walk this path? I'm like, ooh, that thing looks nice. Let me go after it. Oh, I should have the judgment not to, but I'm still, I'm kind of woozy. It's kind of like cock on the Jungle Book. You guys know about Ka? Trust in me. You know, and then uh, that Mowgli's like and he gets locked, he locks eyes with Ka and it's over. But then there's one scene, man, this is awesome scene in Jungle Book. Ka's like, trust in me, you know, and all of a sudden a rock crushes his head. And it's so biblical, (laughs) Genesis 3, that one day Christ will crush the head of Satan. He will crush the deceiver. Oh my goodness, man, I'm going to be pushing my way to the front to see that. Like, I'm so sick and tired. so sick and tired of deception. I'm so sick and tired of injustice. I'm so sick and tired of the sin of this world. And what sickens me even more is so many times when I fall for the trap, I see the fly. Trust in me. And I'm like, yeah. Man, I get so allured the wages of sin is death I know that but I will pursue it I'll go after it I'm careless and that ambush of sudden overpowering temptation comes and bam nails us right so disguising the danger of sin under delicious decoration this is how the flesh hooks our affections They look like something that we would be willing to sell our soul for they look like something that we would be willing to walk toward like a moth going to the and you know my papaw used to have this bug light man in the summer we'd sit around to be dark and this bug lights this blue light just kind of shimmering in the darkness you already know what I'm talking about there's a mosquitoes hitting the light they're frying every time it hits them and then every once in a while a big something. I don't know what. <laughs> Out of the darkness, <laughs> and you're like, wow, but man! I, like, there's such a spiritual lesson in that for me, because I'm like uh, walking through life, like not thinking about Christ and the cross, <laughs> right? So often. Jeremiah chapter 4 talks about harboring wicked thoughts. When we harbor wicked thoughts, our imagination becomes like a pyromaniac. He just dumps gasoline on it, man. Just Satan's like, man, just fuel. Feed the flames, man. Feed the flames. Let's go for it. Let's get them in. Let's suck them in all the way. And we will give hours to this. We will give hours to fantasizing, dwelling on, longing for. I mean, Amazon. How long can I get sucked into Amazon? Golly, like, oh, let's shop. Man, it'll be here tomorrow. This is awesome. Right? Just, just this alluring, just, just anything to pull my mind away. Anything to pull my focus off. Anything to get me, maybe it's anything to get me on the internet. Maybe it's anything that will get me distracted from my life and my purpose. Maybe it's something at work that's going on that will continue to just eat away at me. And then rumors start. And then I start diving towards, you know, thinking about people a certain way or not trusting people or not trusting those in my own home. Whatever it may be that plagues us, that chases us, that pursues us, that allures us. We don't want those things to just burn. We want to get rid of it. We want to set our heart on heavenly things. Set our hearts on the cross. Be careful to keep our affections warm for Christ, knowing all along that, yes, I will be forgiven. I do not stand condemned. That's why I started this whole thing with the gospel. Because I don't want us to get to the end and be like, yeah, man, I'm just like Pastor Josh. Everything I see, I'm just like, "Uh, uh, uh, squirrel, you know. We know we're like this, but we don't stand condemned in it. Yet, knowing that we're like this, we need to shift gears. And I want to just encourage us. One of the most powerful words of the gospel is remember remember. In those moments when we are tempted, in those moments when we fail, in those moments when we're falling, remember. Church, remember. Set your heart on heavenly things. Set your heart on the cross of Christ. Keep your affection warm for Christ. There's a moral law of gravity that's going to drag us down and weaken our affections for Christ unless we constantly stir them up. Going to the basketball tournament, three on three, being with guys, ladies getting together, going to small group, constantly stirring each other up, constantly reminding each other of the cross. Not forsaking our first love, but in pursuit of Christ, in pursuit of that. And a lot of us have done some things even this week for which we're not proud, but we can come to the cross even this morning and seek forgiveness and love. And so that's what I want us to do. There are going to be some people around with yellow lanyards. All right? They're a prayer team that we've set up. And maybe for the first time you're hearing this gospel message and you're like, man, I want to be declared one of Jesus' own. And we want to give you opportunity to pray with somebody that Jesus would become your savior today. So the band's gonna come up here and they're gonna be playing music and I wanna give you an opportunity to respond to this message. Maybe it's the response to say, I wanna become one of Jesus' own. I wanna become a child of God. How do I do that? How do I get to that place? Maybe it's to come for prayer because you have messed up this week. There has been failure. But you come to the cross this morning and say, I know I'm not condemned. I know I've done wrong. Jesus, forgive me. But praise God, he has forgiven me. Praise God, I can walk in a new life this morning. Maybe you need prayer because you also are sick of all of the things, all of the injustice, all the sin, all the things that come against us as believers. And you just want prayer. You want to pray about specific things You pray about specific people. And pray about what God's doing in your heart. We just want to give you a moment to respond to Jesus in prayer and in worship. Let me do that now.